This is the Blue White Breakdown, the premier podcast for all things Penn State football. Talk about culture. It's something that should show up in every aspect of your program. It's the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penn Live. Here are your hosts, Bob Flounders and David Jones. All right, the Blue White Breakdown begins, and we have uh, its its special guest uh, spring springtime, even though it's not quite springtime. And I don't know if you, I, I probably have not made this apparent over the years, but I, I think I, I've tried to be in my old age a mentor to certain people in this business. Some failed, some succeeded. Uh, you know, I tried like Morty Seinfeld. I tried to make some calls. But I've never really made apparent that this guy, well, I used to call him my agent because he was so, so helpful early in my career. Mike DeCourcy from the Big Ten Network and the Sporting News and uh, late of uh, the Pittsburgh Press and then the Memphis Commercial Appeal and then the Cincinnati Inquirer. Mike, it's a big news day. Holy crap. Chris Holman. Yeah. I, you know, I... I, I uh... You, you sort of felt it coming. The last two years uh, started so well, and then and each of them, uh, well, one finished uh, poorly, and the other uh, didn't finish, uh, but was heading in the direction of that certainly. And I thought he was going to work there, didn't you? I thought he was going to great did, choice. Honestly, I mean, there are lots of different reasons why it didn't work. Ultimately, I think the primary reason that it didn't work there were a couple. One is. That I remember in 2004, I was on my way to the Chicago pre-draft camp and my cell phone rings. And this is when you could still pick up your cell phone in an automobile without uh, getting into trouble. Didn't you have one of those giant, giant phones like this, probably? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, no, actually, it was probably a little teeny because it didn't have it. You know, those, one of those. A razor. Ones. That's right. Yeah, I've got that. Yes. Uh, oh. And and I and I and, and that motto was then at Xavier. And this was June of 2004 mm-hmm. and Ohio State had just made a change announced a change a vacancy in coaching position and Thad wanted to know my thoughts on the Ohio State job and my response was to ask him what's the talent like in Ohio coming up and he said it's phenomenal and at that point it was uh, uh per- Dallas Lauderdale and uh and oh gosh, now the names are starting to fade into. We're the both background. old, buddy. We're getting. You're, I'm, yes, a, I'm older am, than you, am, but you're older old. David Lighty was then. Um, uh, the the great shooter Diebler, John Diebler, was coming up. So they had lot. There was lots of talent. Of course, that was. Was Mike Conley in the in the in the pipeline yet? Or no? Mike Conley was Indiana, and Greg Oden was uh, Indiana as well. So he was very connected. That to was them. my point. I mean, the, the talent in Indiana was pretty damn good too, right? Yes, and he could get those guys to Ohio State. He certainly wouldn't have gotten them to Xavier. As connected as he was from his time at Butler, he would not have gotten them to Xavier. So, so I said, if the you know, basically, my message was, if the talent in Ohio is great, it's a phenomenal job. Um, th- now. Things are different now. It's 20 years later, and recruiting isn't quite as regional as it was then. But I still think that Ohio State is best when Cleveland, Dayton, Columbus, Cincinnati are producing exceptional players. I think that's when Ohio State is at its best. It hasn't been. The state has not been great lately in that sense. So that's part of the problem, small part, or at least some part of it. The biggest problem for him 
with this particular program has been the instant one and done, not the planned one and done, the Kevin Durant one and done. Like you get Kevin Durant or Anthony Davis or one of those guys and they come into your program and they go one and done, it's fine because they're going to absolutely wreck teams while they're there. And then they're going to go on. But the Malachi Branham one and done is the worst thing that can happen to your program because he's a very good player on a on a you know on a team that but he's not a transformational player. Well, let's just put it this way. I mean, four years ago, I'm seeing guys like Dwayne Washington and Luther Muhammad come in there, and I'm thinking this guy's going to get it going. I mean, it. Well, and it was going. I mean, they they earned the number two seed in 2020, uh, 2021. Uh, they were going to be a five seed in 2020 if we'd had a tournament. Uh, so there, it was going, but then the Branham thing happens, and that happened two years in a row. And you can't, it, it, no one survives that. Like, no one has survived that. I don't want to spend too much time on Ohio State. This okay. is a Penn State centric podcast, but it is, it's instructive to me for this reason. The expectations at Ohio State, uh, they contrast with Penn State in basketball. <laughs> and, they are so much greater, even at Ohio State, which is ostensibly a football school, that they would step in in a transition between ADs, for God's sakes, and school presidents and make this move in the middle of February. That, that would never, ever happen at Penn State. They would never, they would never happen. But when, when Chris Holtman has a big losing record two years in a row, the expectations there at Ohio State are much greater now. Contrast that with what you've seen. I would like you to characterize Penn State basketball over the years. And we'll go back to Penn State football and how we met and you sitting next to me in Beaver Stadium's press box in 1991 and teaching me all about Joe Paterno. We'll get to that. But you're you're what we know is a basketball expert. You have had an incredible career in that vein. And you have a worldly view such that it is about Penn State basketball. What is it? What has been their problem? What do you see? Well, I think that the problem starts with geography. Yes, Ohio State is a football school, but it's a football school that is in a major metropolitan area. So they are right away. Ohio State and Penn State are not the same. Uh, it, uh, Central Pennsylvania, the State College is beautiful. It's one of the really lovely places in America. And State College itself is a great town. And Penn State is a you know, it's a great university. My sister holds a degree from there. I they still have three hundred of my dollars from when I was going to go there before <laughs> I was offered a scholarship. Oh, I, I know where I know where you're going. Bob Knight's quote: "I've been to Penn State. It's a goddamn camping trip. There's nothing around for a hundred no, miles." No. When they were invited into the league, that's what he said. Yeah, well, Bob Bob's been wrong about a thing here. <laughs> Bloomington's in the middle of nowhere. So is Lafayette. No, Bloomington is 45 minutes from Indianapolis. And it's in the middle of a state that... All right, what about Champaign? Well, Champaign, it's a, it's a great question. And again, Champaign is two hours from Chicago. It's different from being two hours from Pittsburgh, uh, which it almost is now. But it, it, like when I was growing up, it was four hours before they started opening up highways. Well, it's not anymore. I know. But Pittsburgh's not a but Pittsburgh's not a great metropolitan area to have access to because it's not a great basketball. Right. What what about this? What about is it really about love of the game? Some of and it. They just don't have it up there. Well, I think I think I think there's a passion for Penn State first of all that's reflected when Penn State is good in basketball and in it anything. has been in anything. Um, yeah. 
but it, I, 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 there, there, are, there are places that have embraced it more passionately uh, in the league than Penn State has. I think it, some of it is um, the, the the building is big for for what the uh, for what the <laughs> traditional for what the community is and for what the traditional interest level has been. I think if they had a basketball building that went tennis that it would be packed a lot and that it would be a better home court advantage than, than Bryce Jordan has been. With steep sides and, yeah. and close in baselines. And... But I th- Dave, I think it's important to say that despite the obstacles, Penn State has overcome those obstacles more often than some places have. Uh, they have, they have, and they, and they fought to as well, more, especially recently. They have been, uh, you know, they were the ones who hired Micah Shrewsbury. And that was an inspired idea. To yes, do it was. And, and I think they p- replaced him really well with Mike Rhodes. Uh, also, a, a, a little bit more obvious choice than Micah was, but still inspired uh, because he had the Pennsylvania connections. Uh, because he, he he coaches an exciting style that might eventually, once it's once it's fully successful, uh, be more energizing for the audience. What about that? I mean, what do you see here? It's a very unique style, especially now. Back when we started, we would see Gary Williams at Ohio State play a style like this, and it was it was fashionable. Then it kind of went out of fashion. I'm not really sure why, but but. Trapping three quarter court trapping press nobody does that anymore, but Penn State does it. What do you think about what that could do for them? I think that it it, it can be successful. I, I still think that if you're going to when they eventually get enough players uh, to to pursue deep runs in the NCAA tournament, you you have to have more than that. That does not sustain you at the NCAA tournament level most of the time because. When you get into the tournament, you're playing the best teams, and the best teams have guards who can deal with it. Uh, and, that, and that's and that's eventually they're going to have to have other elements to their game. I think you saw that. You know, you saw the VCU run uh, in 2011, and and it went all the way there. And and they played that style. Uh, it's, and his isn't exactly the same, but it's con- conceptually the same. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun to watch. But when after that. They were still very successful on a league level. They were winning league games, Colonial and Atlantic 10 eventually, but they weren't advancing in the NCAAs because of, you know, in part because of that being something that is not, uh, like, it's, it's, it's not going to work against the best players. It's not, not, not consistently. So you have to have other elements. And I think that once you build that roster, I think you 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 work in the other elements and and then you become a successful team in the NCAA's as well. So you're are you moderately bullish on Penn State basketball right now? Yes. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. I think I, I I would say yes. Uh, obviously we have to see where the recruiting goes. Uh both now in the high school level and of course uh, in the yeah, portal sure, as well. Sure. Um but I I I I like what Mike's doing. I really do. And I I like that one of the things I really like Dave is how well he's kept these guys on board. Uh, I'm telling you, <laughs> it, it's not easy when you're when you're struggling to get to to stay on board and to and to get fully invested in making a run in February, and and that's happened. And they haven't shot worth a damn in most of the games from from distance, and it, it's it's hard when the ball's just not going in the hoop 
sometimes it, things can come apart. Things, the wheels can come off. People start getting down in the mouth and a little negative. And that is difficult to do. It's difficult to keep them interested in other things. I just got a text from a mutual friend of ours. It was a private text, so I won't say, but it says, Hugs is sober, tanned, and ready <laughs> for the, the Ohio State job. I don't think that's going to happen. It's, it was a joke text, but I, that's why I was laughing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I also got a joke text from from a, a coach in the business uh, about about hugs. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and he has a background at Ohio State. His brother played there, as you remember. Uh, he coached there as well. And if he were 55, I could see it. But it would never happen. Never happen in Ohio State. I, I will say I remember um, when they hired Jim O'Brien, I went up to the press conference and Gordon Gee saying, uh, emphatically that they didn't ever call Bob. And this is when I was covering the 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 uh the Bearcats for the Inquirer. And and those quotes, I'm sure that Bob did not appreciate those quotes appearing in the story. Why would you make a point of that? They just see themselves as a a little bit of a higher tier. For what reason? I don't know. He's a black hat. He always wanted to be a black hat and they think they see themselves as white hats. All right, the 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 scope of the league. Uh, maybe uh, it's just me, but I see like an, an opportunity for an entree for a complete switch around of some of the big names. Uh, <laughs> maybe Wisconsin and may maybe Michigan State. I think maybe it's time for Izzo to step down. I don't think he will. I said it. You didn't. But I, I just see I see some staleness in that program right now. I'm saying that you don't have to. Wisconsin. Just, you know, they're still the third best, fourth best team in the league. They're third, aren't they? Third. They're third. I just see some some weariness, some tired ideas in these two places. And meanwhile, you've got a couple of, of schools that are coming out of nowhere. And Minnesota's starting to look like really competitive. Haven't been in forever. You know, you got to go back to, what, Jim Dutcher oh, no, since they were really... I can't remember. And when's the last time they were a real factor for a long time in this league? It's been a while. And and Northwestern, I don't know if they can sustain this without Boo Booey, who is a transformational player in this league. I mean, he's the best point guard in the league. And has uh, did you think that would work when they they uh, Boo Booey was a bit of a knucklehead for his first two years? Did some harebrained things, kind of. You didn't know if he would ever grow up. They bring in his his half-brother, Taylor Battle, and Chris Lowry is another assistant. And all of a sudden, those two – I thought those two hires were just brilliant. I didn't think Taylor Battle was going to work. I thought that was a Hail Mary by Chris Collins, and it's been a brainstorm. What about Northwestern? Because they are a very tough, tough-minded team right now. I don't know if you can sustain it. But that is an opportunity. They have an opportunity to lift themselves up into the upper tier for good. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that, but they have a chance. Well, Chris has done an amazing job there, especially given that it, he pushed that boulder up the hill, got it up there, and then it rolled back down on him. And there were questions about whether they'd ever get back again. And instead, uh, you know, Boo, like you said, Boo was a uh, Boo was a tough player to watch at times his first few years because he was a feral cat. Yeah. He made a lot of wild decisions on the floor mm -hmm. and last season, all of a sudden was completely transformed and became uh, an all league first team player. Uh, your first team, all big 10. That's a, that that's, that's a heck of a thing. I mean, that 
it's a major league with a lot of terrific players to be one of the five best players in that league is pretty impressive. And from there, uh, he's continued on in, in this season to be even better. It's been really cool to watch. I have a lot of respect for Chris in that he continued to fight uh, and continued to. And, and one of the things that I really like about Chris, there are coaches in all businesses that are afraid to bring in people who, if they, if, if, if they make obvious changes based on the addition of those people, uh, they'll get credit. And oh, I can't have that. You know, I can't have that in my program because it's all got to be about me. When, 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 if you remember in 2017, when they made the tournament for the first time, they had a huge victory over Michigan at home that they had to have in order to make it. And it was on a pass that uh, a baseball pass length of the court to Derek Pardon, who finished the, the play. It was kind of Leitner-ish. And when I called to do a story about that play right away, it was Brian James drew that up. It wasn't, oh, look at me. Oh, yeah. And he's done the same with Chris and what Chris has done for their defense. Chris Lowry, what he's done for their defense. Chris was a phenomenal defensive coach. Uh, he built an incredible defense. Where was he? Illinois State? Where Southern Illinois. Was yeah, Southern Illinois. Which, yeah. Uh, what about Southern Illinois? I mean, they've, they've given the Big Ten Lance Jones, Domask. I mean, what was going on in that program? And, uh, and I don't even know who the coach was there. That uh, two of the two of the most interesting, maybe the most two in most interesting uh, imports in this this season. What's amazing about that, Dave, is that those are two of the best players in the Big Ten: five best, ten best, fifteen best, somewhere in there. And they weren't good. They were not a good team. They had two of the two of the best players in the Big Ten, and they weren't good. I thought I'd see an under the radar NCA team that I just didn't notice, and they no, you know, I was no. like, yeah. But but that's the portal, and that's these days, and those are the guys you're looking for, and it's the reason Chip Kelly left UCLA, and it's the, the reason the reason Jeff Halfley left Boston College is a lot of even not really uh, talking. Let's, let's call time out on that, okay? Well, let's call let time me out. let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. It's the reason that that a lot of the low power conference schools they're going to get cherry picked all the time because they don't have the wherewithal to keep guys and and this certainly certainly goes certainly goes for mid-majors in college basketball it's going to be awfully tough the way the portal in nil is because i don't know how you compete but that's a whole nother conversation this is the blue white breakdown <laughs> we have to rewind because i can't have you on without doing this to Get your now now let's see how old are you it's it's 1991 you're at the Pittsburgh Press and you've covered Penn State football for how many years at this point three four at that point it was I think I'd been through full seven full seasons at seven that, point, that was my I age. didn't know that yeah how old are you in 1991 do I have to say yeah well, I think people can do the math yeah yeah I was I would have been 31 all right well, you were my tutor on what this was all about, because that was my first season on the beat. You're on my left in the Beaver Stadium press box. And <laughs> I will never forget what a learning experience it was just sitting there having you talk to me about Joe Paterno. Now, what it's all water under the bridge. What was that experience like for you in total? I won't point you in any direction in specific, but I know basketball was always your sport. 
But it's good for, for sports writers to have a breadth of experience, just like it's good for athletes to play different sports. Well, it, it, when I when I started on football, first of all, I lived in Pittsburgh, so football is going to be like our big thing. That's yeah. So that's why I, I was covering Penn State the, uh, on the staff of the Pittsburgh Press. You're going to cover some football, and so uh, I I covered Penn State, uh, uh, and they kind of made me cover football for a while before they'd let me have basketball. They wanted me to prove <laughs> that I could do a beat. I, I really yeah. believe that. Made you cover football. You really didn't really enjoy it that much, did you? Well, I didn't. No, it, I enjoyed it less the more I did it. Um, but the idea was <laughs> yeah. that I would earn what I wanted, which was college basketball, based on how I did on the football beat and on high schools and things like that. They never said that, but I was, I'm convinced that's what happened. Um, and so for me, the, the, I've written about this before. And so I don't feel uncomfortable sharing it. Uh, first of all, Joe was, in the end, the best journalism education I could have ever had. Because, Why? Well, because when I went there, he had a reputation of being the perfect college football coach. And what always puzzled me about covering him was that with as well as he had been treated by the media, he was fairly hostile with most of the media and particularly with me. Uh, and I always thought that was interesting because I was young. I was, when, I, when I first started on the beat, I was 24 years old. He could have, to an extent, in so many words, molded me uh, if he had been cooperative and, and, and sort of put me in the direction that he wanted me to be in. And instead he chose to be combative. It's just his right. It's, why, do you uh, it's totally did, him. why do you think he did that? Why did he do that? Do you I think? don't know. I, I, I don't know. It, it, at the point I joined him, he, it, he, in 10 years earlier or so, he had gone around the state into every newspaper, every bit, especially the big newspapers, Inquirer, Daily News, Pittsburgh Press, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and actively lobbied that they should be covered on a daily and weekly basis in, in a way that they hadn't. Yeah, it's a different time. But but they had not been at that point being been covered by those big papers, and he wanted them there. And then once he got them there, he didn't want them there. In so many words, like it made you feel like he didn't want them there. Did you ask? Did you ask questions he didn't like? Oh, I'm sure I did. And I, part of that was uh, being young, and part of that was uh, that he wasn't going to want any questions that were uh, that were um, adverse to what he was trying to accomplish. I like I, I know I asked questions that weren't the best. I was young. Give me an example. Do you remember? You must remember something. Give me an example. Oh, I remember one time I asked him if he was surprised. They played East Carolina. It was 85, I'm going to guess. This is probably my second year on the beat. I'd have to look it up to be sure. Um, they played East Carolina. They won by a very narrow march, and I don't remember the score. But it was less than a touchdown. And I asked him if he was surprised by how competitive ECU was or something like that. And he pounded the table and said, you guys drive me absolutely up a wall. That was his opening line there. I remember that. I don't remember what he said after that, but I remember him saying that. Um, and I, you know, I, I, that was a bad question. It wasn't a great question. It wasn't phrased right. I get that. But again, it was being new to the business. But one of the, what, what struck me about it, when I got there, practices were closed which I never believed. And, and it's almost, it's almost uh, standard practice now. 
I've always believed that's the worst thing a coach can do uh, because it, it automatically puts the reporters into a knowledge deficit. And so if you are in practice as a coach and you are instructing players to do this, that, and the other, and then they go out on the field on Sunday or Saturday, I should say, and don't do this, that, and the other, then it's on them. I, to me, it's on them because I've seen them instructed to do those things. In the, in the reporter's eye, it's on the, it's on the player making the mistake. Yes. But if you okay. are out there and things don't work, so I don't know. You, you didn't do this, that, and the other, but were you told to? How would I know? I wasn't in practice. Um, I, 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 the best example I could ever tell you about relative to that concept is I, I covered Memphis the University of Memphis when I when I left Pittsburgh and I covered Larry Finch and every one of his practices was open and I was there every day because I was the Tigers beat guy and that's what was required. So I was there every day and they had a player whose name I won't use, but who was a big high school star in Memphis and a, the nicest young man you could ever want to meet, but relatively disengaged from the practice of playing college basketball. It wasn't that interesting. Um, and so in practice, Larry would say, go left here. And then the play would start and he would go right. And I'm exaggerating that, but not by much. I mean, it was that opposite and it was that consistent. So when about a, so this is my first or second year on the beat, his family requested a meeting with me and my editor to talk about why Larry never played this guy in games. And so I said, okay. And we had the meeting and and they asked what I saw. And I said, well, I'll tell you, he's the nicest young man you could ever want to meet. But when Larry says left, he goes right. And, and, and the <laughs> father is like not listening to me. And the uncle's like, really? And so then. Wait a minute. The, the, the father of the kid who didn't listen also wasn't listening. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so then on that Saturday, they protested outside the pyramid, which was the arena where the Tigers played. They were carrying picket signs. And I'm telling you, if I hadn't been in those practices, that would have been A1 in the commercial appeal. And for me, it was a note. It was in my notebook. That's how little it meant because I knew that they weren't right. And that's, so that's where it all, so that's what I learned over time. But Joe was like that. And, uh, and, and so from the time I got there, he kept closing doors that had been open. When I first started, you could go into the locker room on Thursday. So I would go up to State College on Thursday from Pittsburgh so that I could be in that locker room and I could interview uh, uh, players like Pete Giftopoulos. I remember having a conversation with Giftopoulos about U2 because they were playing Three River Stadium and I'd never heard one of their records. And he was explaining to me why U2 was great. Wow. Um, these are kinds of things that I remember. Michael Zordich. Um, who, who was terrific safety on the early teams I covered. And he was, he was the snappiest dresser. And I was young and getting interested in clothes. And we had conversations about there was a boutique in State College where he got all his clothes. And I don't know if it's still there. It was called Michael's. So if they're still there, here's a, you know, here's a free commercial or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, the, you know, I met those guys and I knew them. You're talking about personal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. By the third year. No, couldn't do that anymore. I was around the third year. Then they would bring players out. And I got to know John Schaefer that way, who I knew really well when I covered him. And by the fourth or fifth year, couldn't do that anymore. You could only talk to players on a conference call. And what, they're, they're being, and they're being babysat 
by representatives yeah. Yeah. from media media. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And and so that's he kept closing doors. And I never I never believed that was the best way to handle it. As I said, I was young. I'm sure I made mistakes. But but that but the way he as combative as he was, uh, rest his soul. Um, it, 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 it was it was not great at the time, but it helped me to become a better reporter and a better journalist because it taught me not to take things at what at what amounts to face value. Whatever everybody else says is true. That means it's true. No, you have to find out for yourself. I do you remember the Miami game in 91 at Miami at the Orange Bowl? Oh, I do. Yes, and the, I do. Yes. <laughs> Are you going to bring that up? And the post game. The post game, pre- yeah, I am. <laughs> In the post game press conference, you want me to explain it, or will you? Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, I remember how I, I described. I, I remember how snap. I described it in the paper. It, I, 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 we, we, the press conference, or the what you want to call the press conference. The words I used: a leaking, stinking armpit of the Orange Bowl Stadium. That's where it was held. That's the way I described it. And I, that was my one of my favorite descriptors ever. Uh, it was, we were underneath the stands. They were vacuuming the stands or blowing them with the air blowers to, to move all the cups and stuff over our heads. Could not the, hear a the single orange, word that Tony Sackett said. The Orange Bowl, under any circumstance, the Orange Bowl was not the best smelling place anyway. But go no, ahead. Yeah. No, uh, it was not. Um, and that was one of the worst places. Uh, and, and I could not hear a word that Tony Sacco was saying as a result because I was not in the front row. And and he answered like I don't know four or five questions, if that. And 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 then the uh, then the director of communications hustled him off the stage, and I got upset. I said I couldn't hear a word he said. It's impossible in this circumstance. You have to. Well, I remember. More- it, I remember Paterno on like a box. I think it, they like brought a yeah, box, something like that. In the, in the it was the end zone uh, giant portal where they bring trucks in. That's what right. I'm remembering. And yeah, that's the leaking, stinking armpit. Yes. And yes, yes. And it's it's in that under the bowels concourse under there. Everything's yes. echoing. There's probably a ring of it's a big game. It was a 26-20, I think, win for the eventual national champion Miami Hurricanes. And a really good right. game. And it's like the surface of Mercury in there all day. It was uh, in September. It was like 90. And so we're all just sweaty. And you, there was no air conditioning in that press box. And we're all sweaty and miserable anyway. And then you can't hear Paterno because he mumbles everything right. anyway. And I'm a young reporter. And I'm like, is this the way it is all the time? This is my like my third game on the beat. And I remember you just snapping. And you, you, and I just talked to Bud Tallman like uh, three weeks ago because he sent me a wonderful note from my retirement. And we've long since patched up our differences, but you, you just went ballistic. I probably have embellished this in my mind because I was so impressed, you know, because like, wow, this guy is a hard ass. This is, this is the kind of reporter I want to be, not accept this sort of ridiculous situation. And and that was one way that you were my mentor. That you, there's a between media relations, the coach in the media. It doesn't have to be an adversarial relationship, but it should be a little bit of a push pull. You know, if if you're treated that way, or if the coach is really pissed off at something you've written and you were wrong, you ought to be able to scream at each other a little. It's okay, but but in these situations, 
you you can't just accept it. And I I learned that from you. I, I thought it was great. I thought it was great. I'm still impressed. I, you know, I've made that. mistakes in my career. Um, I don't hold myself we, up as perfect. Uh, there was a very prominent coach, um, a coach who has won who who has won a national championship within the time I covered college basketball, about whom <laughs> I made an assumption relative to a a uh, conference initiative. Let's say. Uh, and I made that assumption and wrote it, and he was mad. And instead of um, oh, just I, say he, who it is. It's probably a long. I don't, long I, don't, I don't want. It was private. Um, but I met. I saw him at uh, the Peach Jam. Subsequent, like immediately subsequent to writing that, and I sat. He. I don't know whether he sat down next to me on purpose or I sat down just to say hi. And he told me. That he was upset about it. He told me his wife said that she, he should call me and he never did. And then he explained what had happened and that I had been wrong. And I apologized. And that covered it. And we were great after that. Um, and I was wrong. I, I, I have, I, you know, the, I, was, I wasn't wrong about that initiative, but I was wrong about his role in it. And, and so he, we covered that easily. And, and partly because I had shown him in the past that I could be trusted and that I and that I understood, uh, uh, you know, what he had accomplished. You were trying to be right. You just made a mistake. Yes. And I, I and, and but I had shown him in the past that I was right when others were wrong. And and so he tr he trusted that it was an honest mistake, but it was a mistake. And I felt bad about making. I still feel bad about it. Um, even it's been a decade. Uh, I, I, I tell that story sometimes to show that I'm not infallible. Uh, that I have made mistakes. And as I said with Joe, that question, the, the East Carolina question, was a bad question. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And it was fairly early in the press conference. I was one of the first one or two people to get my hand up or whatever. And I, it was a bad question. But uh, it wasn't, you know, I, I, he can, you can react however you want to a question. I, I will tell you a story about bad questions. And it wasn't a bad question, this one. But I'll tell you a story about how a reaction can happen. I, I was covering the Pirates, my first beat of which I, I, I will freely admit I was among the poorest baseball writers in history. Maybe not baseball writers, but baseball journalists. I was really bad at baseball. Um, and I was, but this time uh, I was covering the Pirates on a Saturday night. So I had an early deadline and, uh, and the Pirates were playing the Mets in, in Shea and Wally Backman hit a deep ball to center field. And I would still say, that the center fielder in question, who was an all-time, you know, was a great player for the Pirates, Omar Marino, and I know how fast he was, and he did not look like he was spending all of his 4-4 speed on getting that ball. So I asked it as diplomatically as possible when I talked to Chuck Tanner, who was the single nicest person in the history of people. Um, and I said, did you have any problem with how Omar played Backman's ball? That's how I asked it. And he said... No, we always play Backman in. And I said, that isn't really what I meant. And then he knew. And he went on fire for five minutes. And I said, even you can, you can ask a question the right way and be as diplomatic as possible and still get a, uh, get a, a well, was he, was he backing, was he backing, having Marino's back or was he genuinely? He was having Marino's back. Okay. He was saying, you know, his guys don't, don't. Okay. Lollygag. There's a word for it. Even right? if he didn't believe in himself, he had Marina's back, and that's what he was he doing. He had it. Okay. Yes. The, yes. My larger point, we got to get out of here, but my larger point is I think it's okay to scrap with coaches back and forth 
And somehow that seems to have been lost. And I don't want to sound like the cranky old man, but when anything happens where it looks like a contentious moment between a coach and a reporter, it makes this giant stink. And I, I just have, I really have a problem with that. Do you? Well, I think that's social media, Dave, because everything's recorded and everything can be viral. It, you know, it now, in, in the past, that moment, there were like six of us there. And maybe some of the New York radio guys got it on tape. Um, yeah. But but it wouldn't it, have been a big no deal camera. even then. It wouldn't have been a big deal even then. It wouldn't have. If there, if there was a social media, that wouldn't have gone viral because that kind of stuff happened every week. But it wouldn't have happened every week if there were social media then, is my point. All right. All right. Maybe you're right. Maybe yeah. You're I right. mean, if, if there had been somebody standing next to me with a phone and filming it, and he still did that, it would have been all over Twitter within three seconds. Okay. So you think it's a, a technology, technological thing. I think it's a generational thing. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Regardless, we've gone long, and I knew this would happen. And, you know, there's so much we missed and so much we could have talked about. Uh, I have more respect for you than any anybody else, as much as anyone in the business. And I thank you for coming on the Blue White Breakdown, Mike. It's been a pleasure. This has been the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Live.